0: But cosmetics are really so many different types of products, and that includes things like hygiene products. So things like toothpaste, deodorant, body wash, those are all cosmetics as well. Even hand sanitizer, which is something I, I've worked on in my career, is a cosmetic as well as an over-the-counter drug product. So cosmetics are really, you know, there are a lot of products we use every single day. So cosmetic chemists are the ones helping develop those.
1: Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Puneet and my co-host is David. How's it going, David? What's new?
2: Pretty great. For those watching on YouTube, you can see I don't have a camera uh, (laughs) because I'm traveling and I desperately need a new laptop now. (laughs) So yeah, I've been traveling for work. So I've been all around. Uh, I was in Texas and now uh, I'm back in a different part of California. So it's been a lot of travel, and I'm ready to go home now. But what about you, <laughs> Mr. Rule? <Ruh-wide> over here. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> so I'll probably I'll be doing a lot of traveling in the coming month, and then the month after that. But I think the big news—I think I teased it a little bit, maybe the last episode—but officially moving to Chicago next month. So I've been packing. And yeah, just kind of preparing for the move. So I'm super excited. If there is anyone listening that is in Chicago and wants to meet up or hang out, then you know, let me know. Reach out on LinkedIn. Pretty easy to find me. So just wanted to say that before we get into into the episode. But we we have it. We have an exciting episode today where we talk about cosmetic chemistry and just the different products. You know, cosmetics isn't just makeup. There's a lot of things that come into play when we talk about this industry and and the consumer products, whether it's sunscreen or, or skin cream or makeup or, you know, even deodorant, right? So we talk about a lot today, but David, I wanted to see if you had anything in particular that you wanted to highlight for our listeners.
2: Yeah, I just really liked the first principles approach that she gave us when describing cosmetic products, specifically around how she looks at each material, specifically and what they do with light, as most of our work is surrounded by light particles, like light scattering, light refraction, etc. And so she breaks it down into, oh, how does the particle size make an impact? How does this material make a difference because of the index of refraction and so i thought it was very interesting that she walked us step by step through a, a relatively complex system because it has to be applied to so many different skins and how it works for all of us so i thought that was very interesting
1: yeah i particularly liked her conversation about material selection and how there seems to be like an array of materials that have previously been used and so there's a lot of formulations and they differ slightly with the ratios when you're creating these products so it was interesting to hear about how that kind of relates to the safety and regulations uh, within this industry but then also you know looking out to the future how can ai artificial intelligence help maybe make some of these processes more efficient, or even maybe do some predictive analysis for the effectivity perhaps. you know. So seems to be a lot of growth and potential in the space. So there's a lot we really talked about, and she even ended the episode sharing some of her advice from the technical marketing perspective on how you can communicate better to your audience and really cater your presentation to different types of audiences as well, since she's had a background talking to consumers or talking to other chemists. So there's a wide range there. So we have a a lot to discuss and it was a really fascinating episode, so I'm excited for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. I'm very happy to introduce our guest for this week's episode, Kelly Dobos. Consultant Cosmetic Chemist and Adjunct Professor at the University of Cincinnati. Kelly earned her Master's of Science in Pharmaceutical Science at Cincinnati, her MBA from Cleveland State University, and her Bachelor's in Chemistry from Oberlin College. Kelly has an expansive background in cosmetic chemistry, and she has held technical roles ranging from formulation chemist to cosmetic research scientist to technical manager to her current role as an adjunct professor. So very diverse background and very experienced. So Kelly has also served as the 2019 president of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists. Kelly is now recognized as a technical and regulatory expert in this field of cosmetic chemistry. So we're very excited to bring her on today. So thank you so much for
2: joining us today, Kelly.
0: Looking forward to the conversation.
2: Well, yeah, let's first start off with what is cosmetic chemistry? I'm sure many of our listeners are unfamiliar with exactly what that field is, and we want to understand what it is and then how you leverage your background to make an impact in this field.
0: Sure. So cosmetic chemistry is really a multidisciplinary field and cosmetic chemists like myself develop products that you use every day. And we basically use our knowledge of chemistry to combine different ingredients, almost like a, a chef creating a recipe. But we also have to understand things about microbiology, skin physiology and skin biology, so there's many different aspects that go into developing a cosmetic product. And one thing I think people always think of with cosmetics is they directly go to makeup, right? That's you know, kind of the first thing we think of when we think of cosmetic. But cosmetics are really... So many different types of products, and that includes things like hygiene products. So, things like toothpaste, deodorant, body wash, those are all cosmetics as well. Even hand sanitizer, which is something I, I've worked on in my career, is a cosmetic as well as an over the counter drug product. So, the cosmetics are really, you know, there are a lot of products we use every single day. So, cosmetic chemists are the ones helping develop those.
1: From the chemistry side, what kind of factors come into play in general? Obviously, I think we'll get into it later in the episode, but in general, can you provide that background on the science aspect that goes into uh the cosmetic industry?
0: Sure. So we we have many different types of ingredients in in the cosmetics industry. So we're looking at things like uh, surfactant molecules and how we can use them to create emulsions, how to bring together oil and water to create things like face lotions or sunscreens. We also use particles like iron oxide pigments or titanium dioxide pigments to create makeup products. So understanding you know, organic chemistry as much as inorganic chemistry in, in our work and even going to the basics of, as far as understanding pH. Interactions in our formulas. So, some preservative systems that help protect your products and keep them safe over a long shelf life, we need to understand how to manipulate the pH of the product to make sure those preservatives remain effective. Things like um, sorbic acid or, you know, the sodium benzoate, we want it to be in the form of benzoic acid. So, we really even have to look at back to the basics like, how do we leverage pH in our formulas?
2: So I'm curious, when we talk about cosmetic, you said it's a very general field and it applies to much more than we think. I'm curious because as engineers, usually we have a very tight definition scope. And so since there's so many different types of people with different types of skin or just different application uses, how complicated does chemistry need to be? And maybe generally, do you start with one product and then make slight tweaks to make it more general? Or do you have to think about individual uh, groups of people to then make a product
0: so there are two ways to think about products, and there's certainly a lot of research today around um, how how personalized and how customized can we get with cosmetics and even to understand your own personal human microbiome and how our products may interact with your particular you know, skin microbiome, but a lot of products are are made to be general and broadly applicable for many different consumers. Things like body wash, for example, or sunscreens can be. We try to make them as broadly uh, useful to consumers as possible, and you know, that's for reasons of, of course, manufacturing. Uh, you know, you want to be able to to scale your formulas and make them affordable as well. One thing we don't always think of as chemists is, you know, cost of materials, and so that's another area of of the work that we do as cosmetic chemists is working to make sure that our products are affordable for consumers as well. So you don't always, in a chemistry lab, think about how much your ingredients, you know, might cost when when working in your college laboratory or things like that. But uh, when it comes to working in these situations in product development, we're also trying to ensure that our formulas are affordable. And that's a unique aspect of working in the cosmetics industry too, is trying to manage the cost of your formula. Yeah.
1: Cause you're selling know, millions and millions of products, right. Or it may more, I don't know. So on that note, when you're in the lab or even like on the lab scale, how much are you thinking about the scalability of it in terms of the manufacturing? Um, Cause you mentioned, you know, cost of materials. So what about like complexity in producing? producing these formulations.
0: Absolutely. That's another really important aspect of our work is, you know, we're working and maybe you start working on a formula in a... Small beaker, about you know 250 grams to to start, and we're going to scale all the way up to tanks that can you can make maybe 10,000 gallons of a particular product. So there's a lot of important work being done in that scale up process, and we work very closely with uh, chemical engineers who specialize in in manufacturing. And there's actually, you know, there's even specific areas of chemical engineering where they focus on figuring out how to scale up these products from the beaker to the production facility. And that's, you know, the mixing changes when you move to these bigger tanks from something in the laboratory, the way you heat something, how quickly you can heat something changes, how accurately you can weigh thing changes, right? In my laboratory, I have an analytical balance and I can get very accurate on my weights. But when we get into a manufacturing facility, there's going to be some inherent variability. So we have to think about all of those things. And that's why when you develop a product, from bench to being launched in the market, it could take, you know, maybe one to five years, depending on the complexity of the formula. So there's a lot of work involved in the products that you use every day. And I think oftentimes consumers don't always realize how much, how much chemistry and chemical engineering work is happening in the background on these products.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I want to dive into that a little bit because one thing that you mentioned were particles and pigments. And so just from that, you know, particle interactions with light seem to be a decent, you know, focus for cosmetic chemistry. And I believe it's like a focus within your patent called optically diffusing particles. So I was wondering if you could kind of describe the, the physics of how a specific formulation can be tailored to people with different skin tones.
0: Sure. So, cosmetic colorants is a, is one of my specific areas of expertise. And when we make a product like a foundation, or even some, this can apply to sunscreens as well too. We're using uh, particles titanium dioxide to provide opacity to the formula. And titanium dioxide is a really good opacifier. It's even used in in paints and other industries as well because of that property. And it's due to the fact that titanium dioxide has a relatively high refractive index. So when we look at materials, we try to look at you know, what are the, the properties, the physical properties of the materials that contribute to their function in the product. So I might use something like titanium dioxide to provide opacity to my foundation product, and that's going to give me coverage. So if I wanted to you know, create a more even skin tone or hide a blemish, I'm going to use a higher percentage of that titanium dioxide. But then I'm going to use other particles like iron oxides, which are red, yellow, and black iron oxides, a blends of those materials to create the different shades of the skin tone to match. But then we use these these particles, these uh, what we call optical blurring particles to give us some, well, exactly what they it says it is optical blurring of these blemishes. Or, you know, for, for someone my age, a little bit older blurring of fine lines and and things of that nature and in those particles we are creating what we call sometimes a composite pigment so there is a substrate of material and this is also used in pearlescent pigments that you see in a lot of cosmetics so we have a, a substrate something like mica which is really transparent has a lower refractive index. And then we'll add titanium dioxide as thin layers coating that particle of mica. And that gives us interference of the light. So we can create different pearlescent effects. You can do different colors from uh, a silver white particle all the way to red, violet, or green, iridescent effects on the particle. But you can also use that interference effect and particle size the smaller particle size you go you can create that optical blurring property to help like I said diminish you know the look of fine lines or even skin tone. And by using the ratios, the correct ratios of the materials, you can create a optical blurring material that has some transparency. So unlike titanium dioxide, where you get like a really white appearance, you have something more translucent. And that is more broadly applicable to more different types of skin tones than that titanium dioxide, which is really a bright white and and almost would create too much of a a mask-like appearance if we just use titanium dioxide to give us those to try and you know give us hiding power so those optical blurring pigments are are very unique in the way they're structured so they're kind of structural interference colors in a way.
2: It sound the way you describe it. It it does sound like we're using a lot of the physical properties, like you're talking about, very physical properties, like particle size and how that refracts light, etc. I'm curious when you look at new material design. You said you first focus on the material properties itself, but what does that material design look like you it seems like you have so many mixes and matches of other materials how do you possibly find like a new formulation that works the best and is the cheapest or how does that pipeline work
0: it is a a lot of experimentation of course so when we develop a new product we start with what we know so you know i always kind of equate it to almost being like you know working in a kitchen and and following a recipe so we might have an idea of what we call the base formula. So if I'm making a lotion, I have an idea of the base formula. And then I'm going to, you know, manipulate the different additives I put in it to achieve different effects. And I'm going to look at each ingredient and assess it for its properties and what it's going to contribute to the end product. And we will start, of course, just like any experiment, you know, put together that base formula and start changing variables and seeing what the the end effect is. And we'll do as much testing as we can on a laboratory basis. You know, if I'm looking at optical blurring, I have ways of, of looking at that in the laboratory, doing drawdowns. Or other instrument, you know, using instrumentation, but uh, we will then also, of course, actually take our products to to consumers. Because as much work as I do in the laboratory and as much data as I have, if the consumer can't see the results, then you know, it all of that data, you know, is is not necessarily as useful as I I think it is. Because you know, our, our true determination of whether or not a product is, you know, going to be successful on the market is, is consumers, can consumers really see the benefits? So we'll do end user testing too out in the market, which is is kind of fun always to take your product out and, and see what consumers say about it. And then, you know, you'll bring it back in and try to make adjustments based on the feedback that you get. So there's a lot of iteration in product development, based on you know our learnings as we go. So we start with a product and we keep making changes until we were satisfied with the performance.
1: So I'm in the medical device industry. So I know that there's a lot of safety and, and regulations that come in this space. And I know that exists in the cosmetic industry as well. You're obviously interacting with skin, the body. So with that being said, I know with, with medical devices, selecting new materials is sometimes more challenging than leveraging materials that have already been in place in previous medical devices or out in the field. I was wondering if you you see the same sort of challenges when it comes to material innovation in the cosmetic industry. Is it kind of just recommended that, you know, if there's already a material that has been approved by, you know, regulatory bodies that and can do the same thing that you kind of choose that material versus innovating and doing some new materials development?
0: So in the cosmetic industry, we have, I'd say, thousands of raw materials that have been used for many years. And there's the there's Cosmetic Ingredient Dictionary. So we've got a lot of materials that we can use in the industry that have a long history of safe use. And there's also an organization called the Personal Care Products Council in the United States that helps manage what's called the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Process. And the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board is a doctors, physicians, toxicologists, chemists, biologists that periodically review ingredients for safety. And they write really big, long reports. And all of these reports are publicly available and published on the safety of cosmetic ingredients. And so when a new ingredient comes to the market and it starts being used Bakuchiol is one I can think of that has been very popular recently. That is being marketed as an alternative to retinol. It's newer in terms of its widespread use in the industry because of that popularity. And so the cosmetic ingredient review will see these new ingredients and be prompted to review them as well. So we have these mechanisms for review of cosmetic ingredients that are newer to the market. The other challenge in that is the European Union has banned animal testing for many years. The United States, of course, it doesn't have a ban, but it's really most brands do not want to do animal testing. And if there was a really new and unique ingredient that there were concerns about, they might want some sort of degree of, you know, if I was going to use something in the lip area, for example, I might want oral toxicity data. Um, And that's, of course, because then the ingredient would be prohibited for use in the European Union. Most companies don't really want to, you know, they're not going to do that. And so in some ways, there are requirements for safety testing that are prohibitive to the use of ingredients because of the ban on animal testing. So there are some ingredients, you know, that you might never see in the cosmetics industry or... You know maybe used in other industries that, because they don't have any safety data, would not be used in the industry. So there are safety mechanisms in place in cosmetics for sure.
2: Is there a large push in the industry to figure out a proxy that isn't animal testing but is close enough to humans? Where is that progress then?
0: So for cosmetic safety, like something like a skin lotion or a, we do testing on humans. It's called something called a human repeat insult patch test. And so we will assess the formulas that way and we can test for irritation as well as allergy that way. And again, usually these are just combinations of, of known ingredients with a long history as safety profile. So they're a very low concern in terms of their irritation potential. And these are exaggerated tests too, so they're leave-on applications. And so we we use those human tests um, to determine, again, skin irritancy and allergenicity. We have ocular irritancy tests that are in vitro as well. So there's a lot of in vitro safety studies done as well. It's just things like when we get to that need for... So if I was to want to list a new color additive for lipstick, it's potential to be ingested. And the FDA might say, because the FDA regulates color additives very strictly, they're one of the ingredient classes that are regulated around the world. Actually, every country has a color regulation. But if I wanted to list a new color in the United States, and I wanted to list it for lipstick use, there's the potential that the FDA would say I would like safety data around oral toxicity. And there is no accepted in vitro test for oral toxicity. So that's really one of the reasons we haven't had any new color additives in a very long time in the United States as well is, is probably that limitation.
1: I'm curious with like how our skin reacts to different products. I assume it, it differs greatly between different types of consumer products. But can you just give maybe like a general background or some insights into like that variability in terms of like, when when you do this type of user testing, is there a significant variability in how we interact or like how we react to different products or or are things generally the same?
0: No, absolutely. So we test for irritation and allergenicity and they're two different mechanisms. So Irritation is universal. So if something is irritating to my skin, it'll be irritating to your skin too. So if I was thinking of something that might be like an an acid, you know, something like cosmetic example might be a glycolic acid being used as a kind of a peel for skincare, Um, a high level of that material, maybe 10% or so. It is going to be irritating for me and you. However, allergens, that's a very individual specific response. So I might be allergic to something you might not be. Um, And that's because it's an immune mediated response. And that's my my favorite skin cell is the longer hand cell. So when I talk about cosmetic chemistry, you have to understand a little bit about skin biology uh, as well. These longer hand cells in your skin actually... They're kind of moving around, and they will, you know, go to the skin. And when you you have contact with an allergen, they're going to actually take that allergen from your skin and take it into your immune system. And that's when your immune system will uh, mount a response to that that allergen. So the first time you get uh, have an allergic response, it's usually delayed because that that process has to happen. But the second time you're exposed to that allergen, you're going to react much faster. And that's part of that testing that we do. We have an induction phase for the skin. So we we expose you to the material for some time, and then you have a rest phase, basically. And then we re-expose you to the material and see if you have an, a reaction then. So we're able to test for those, those irritation and allergy, but you know, again, the irritation response is, is universal and the your allergy response is something that is specific to individuals. So you can think of it even as in like food allergies. You, you might know someone who has a peanut allergy and, you know, you don't have, oh, so you you might have a peanut <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> allergy. I, I don't have a peanut allergy. So, and we look at allergenicity of our cosmetics because we want them to be broadly safe for consumers. So, when we get something that is a known allergen and it's typically of fragrance molecules there are certain fragrance molecules that we list out in the ingredient list so that consumers if they're allergic they can you know find that easily on the label
2: yeah i i would say that i i know what foods i'm allergic to i don't know what fragrances i'm allergic to i'm thinking um... <laughs> the same thing
1: <laughs> like is that something that like you that you test for it, with like when you go to the doctor's office or like you know, how are you supposed, how am I supposed to know if I'm like allergic to a certain fragrance or not, fragrance molecule?
0: Similar to, you know, like I guess if you can get tested for there are allergy panels. So if you find yourself having a reaction to a cosmetic product. And it you know it can be hard sometimes too. We use lots of products every day, but you can take the label and look for those ingredients and you can get an allergy test. and the skin allergy tests have a panel of generally the most common ingredients and you would also want to you know, review that label with your physician and, and see if there's anything on that label that they would include in that in that particular test.
2: We kind of got sidetracked, but I thought it was very fascinating diving in there, maybe just zooming out and looking at the broader application. So all this time, we've been talking about how light interaction and how you can manipulate different materials to get different effects. And we think that this is a pretty broad area. So we're interested to see what other applications of the technology are there that you've been focusing on.
0: I would say another uh, important application of, of particle and light interaction, of course, is sunscreens. In the United States, sunscreens are regulated by the the FDA's over the counter drugs, and they have uh, they create again going back to my kitchen analogies. The FDA has sort of a recipe for creating sunscreens. They tell you what ingredients you can use, the concentrations of those ingredients, combinations of those ingredients. They tell you how to test the sunscreen as well and what claims you can make about the sunscreens. And two of the sunscreen active ingredients that are permitted in the United States are titanium dioxide and zinc oxide, and those are inorganic particles that we use. And they're, of course, they're both white. And that can contribute to, you know, some formula aesthetics that consumers don't necessarily love, right? They can cause a lot of whitening on the skin, especially for darker skin tones. It becomes more visible. So we look at things like how can we decrease the particle size without decreasing the the sun protection of these materials to create more transparent formulations to get decrease that whitening on the skin. Of course, we probably never get rid of that whitening when we're, we're using these you know, they are white particles and if you go too small in particle size, you start to lose that that sun protective factor. So, we look at different ways using those materials and their their particle size to give us a good SPF but also um, in UVA protection, but also decrease that whitening appearance on the skin. And we'll also use other ingredients in the formula to help manipulate that as well. So looking at how, how we can use emollients to create even spreading of those materials on the skin because you really want an even film of those particles in order to get the best sun protection as well. You can imagine you don't want that patchy sunscreen. It's not going to give you the protection you need. So we have all, all kinds of different ways of looking at those materials and the base that we put them in to create the best sunscreen possible.
1: How much does the texture of the sunscreen factor into maybe the development or maybe that the next set of improvements with sunscreen? Because I know that that's something that I think about when when applying sunscreen is how it feels on my face or the rest of my body, you know, and I feel like that's something that is now a factor into people's buying decisions as well.
0: Yeah, I think sunscreen usage has become so much more often today compared to so when the the regulations got written. In the United States it was in the 1970s, and around that time, I'd say most people, you know, the primary use of sunscreen was beach product. Or yeah, you know, you're new, you're going to spend a lot of time outdoors. But today, sunscreen use is becoming more prevalent, and because we understand the the damage that UV exposure can can cause in our skin, and skin cancer is actually the number one cancer in the United States. So we have a lot more focused around using sunscreen every day. And you kind of, you know, address one of the challenges in developing this product is how does the sunscreen feel? And the biggest uh, hindrance to compliance or or how much a person uses sunscreen, you know, we've, we've done studies about this and it shows that it's because, you know, consumers don't want to reapply because they don't like the way it feels, they don't like the way it looks. And that's one of the real challenges that we have to overcome in developing this products. And, Cosmetic chemists will spend a lot of time testing the, the aesthetics of a product. And, you know, a beach product, we also want it to be waterproof. We we want some, well, not waterproof, that's the, I can't say waterproof according to the regulations because there's abs, absolutely no, no product would ever be waterproof completely, but they're water resistant. Uh, you want a product to be water resistant for the beach as well. So there are different compromises we'll make in different formulas because, a product for beach that has that that water resistance is going to have, you know, we're going to need film formers to help keep the product on the skin through swimming. So there'll be different performance characteristics for different types of formulations that we can look into. And, you know, another aspect is, again, I go back to cost is most people are willing to spend more on a product for their face than they are on their body. So we have, again, different limitations for different types of products that we'll work within to try and develop the best.
2: One thing that I noticed is that sometimes when I get really cheap sunscreen, I try to rub it in. It just stays like a white blob like on my skin. So when you're talking about creating these thin films, is just the level of product and whether or not it can create these thin films will make it more seamless into the skin? Or maybe what exactly is happening there when we apply to the skin and then it's white and then when we spread it out, it becomes, again, our skin color.
0: So some products have higher levels of things like silicone materials or silicone elastomers that helps with the the spreading on the skin. And so there you're trying to get to as you know the most even film as possible. And these materials are, of course, tra- readily transparent, so they're not contributing to extra whitening on the skin. When you use a traditional emulsion, you may have certain emulsifiers uh, like fatty alcohols or things in there that also, you know, even if you notice when you rub in just a general body lotion, you can kind of sometimes see, we, we tend to call it soaping in the industry on the skin. So you may see just some whitening in appearance just because of that that emulsion that you're using. So there's different factors at, at play and anything that you see on the skin. But you'll see some sunscreens today that are, you know, the translucent sunscreens, ones that are using the organic filters. So we have things like you may see avobenzone or octyl butyl salicylate. You may see some salicylates or other materials in sunscreens. And these organic sunscreen actives are actually, they're they're clear on the skin, so they don't give you that whitening like a titanium dioxide or zinc oxide does.
1: Well, I appreciate you mentioning some of the materials that might be used in sunscreen products, because I was about to ask that. But now I'd like to kind of move to the safety of products and even how it's marketed to consumers, because I think there might be some misconceptions relating to the manufacture of various cosmetics with regards to the safety of these products and potentially even its effectivity or or what it's targeted towards. And so maybe that is related to regulation and, and approval. but. From your perspective, I know you've had experience with technical marketing as well. How can we tell the difference between a thoroughly tested and safe product with one that that isn't or maybe isn't entirely transparent about everything that goes into it?
0: Sure. So in, in the United States, actually, the regulation says that a company needs to test their product or prove that it's safe before they put it on the market. And if it hasn't been tested or... You know, analyzed for safety, because that can come from also, you know, documentation of ingredients and ingredient safety as well. But if a product hasn't been proven to be safe, there's actually supposed to be a warning on the labels that says this product has not been evaluated for safety. And so many companies do these these standard safety tests before they place a product on the market, including microbiological testing to ensure that the product is uh, free from harm from microbes and that over the course of expected consumer use, there's there's not going to be microbial contamination either. So there are a battery of tests that uh, companies do before putting a, a cosmetic on the market. And I would say, you know, your your big reputable companies. So, you know, your Procter and Gamble, L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, they are doing absolutely doing all this work to put their products safely on the market. Because also the, you know, the risk for them, it would be really big if they had a particular problem with their product. So, you know, it's not to say that, you know, all smaller brands are of concern, but um you know, I think the more sophisticated the company is producing product, the more confident you can be in the safety of the product. But it is a requirement that products placed on the market be be proven safe. And you know, companies that sell globally, there are requirements in Europe as well for safety. So, Global companies have, uh, you know, they, they have a high bar for safety in product development
2: maybe now you can tell us what's next for cosmetic chemistry. You said you almost have like an almanac of like thousands of materials. And so it seems like if you mix and match enough, you'll find a customizable solution for a lot of the needs today. What do you think are the new innovations? I know you said that there are now new barriers to entry for new materials since there's no annual testing, but maybe are there any new materials on the horizon or are there any new types of chemistries on the horizon within the next five to 10 years?
0: Well, we're seeing a lot of, you know, not necessarily, I would say, new chemistries of ingredients, but new ways of producing ingredients. So many ingredients are now being produced by biotechnology, these ingredients that were, you know, resource intensive to produce you know, bring with them certain impurities, they're being able to be produced today by microbes. And a good example is there's a vegan collagen that has been introduced into the the cosmetics industry that has been quite successful and is, yeah, these new materials, like I said, it's not collagen's not a new ingredient to cosmetics, but the way that collagen is being made is, you know, more sustainable, environmentally friendly. And so I think we're seeing a lot of work on these existing ingredients and how they're produced. But another really interesting thing I've seen is, you know, we talk about, we have all these different ingredients, and ways to combine them. We're seeing companies use AI to help develop formulas and get to a more efficacious and more stable product faster than you know the old trial and error Edison approach that many of us you know may be used to. So I've seen some really fascinating work uh, happening. You know, I, I was at a conference this spring and I was really you know kind of blown away by how they can take You know, this database of ingredients that we have and work to put them together into a suitable formula in a a really short amount of time. And they're also using AI to help optimize that scale up and processing. So, how do we, you know, take a product from beaker to production in a way that is cost effective as well and also may use less energy in that production? So, we're seeing a lot of efforts around the existing ingredients we have but using them in new ways and i I find that's been pretty fascinating to to watch
1: that's awesome i'm excited to see ai continue to make an impact all all around us and it was just very fascinating hearing about how it's particularly kind of infiltrating or or making an impact in the cosmetics industry because i see some parallels with other fields in material science but I'd love to wrap up the episode by getting your advice regarding communication as a scientist and you're a consultant whose work has involved uh, technical marketing. So just in general, do you have any helpful advice or or hints that our listeners could use in their day-to-day lives to be clearer and more concise with their communication, especially on a technical level?
0: Absolutely. So when I speak to, you know, I speak to both consumers and, and cosmetic chemists. And I think in talking to, you know, whomever it is, you really have to think about framing your conversation and tailoring your conversation to your audience. And, you know, so it's always good to take some time and think about who am I talking to and, and why do they care about what I'm talking about? Um, And that can help you really get to the heart of the matter and, you know, be convincing in, in whatever you're trying to discuss. So it's good to take that time and think about, like I said, how do you frame your conversation to the person? And. For me specifically when I talk to consumers I know that you know I have studied chemistry I've been a chemist for 20 years and I you know love chemistry and I can really dig into the details and get into the the complicated nature of things and I love that part of it but that doesn't make sense to talk to a, a consumer in that way so I really look at how can I use maybe analogies how can I use something they're familiar with to help them understand what I'm talking about. And I find that that's giving them something that they're familiar with, um, helps really for them to get whatever concept I'm talking about more quickly. And I think, That's important when talking to consumers because you don't also, you don't want to try and, you know, obscure what you're talking about with lots of, you know, technical information because that's, that's not going to help them. So I always take time to really say first, who is my audience and how do I best talk to them? Like I said, I can talk to chemistry for a very long time and I, you know, my, my, some of my poor friends who have to hear me all the time talk about (laughs) it when they, when they ask, but. You know, I think that's an important part of it is really getting down to the something simple and understandable. and again, you know, going back to you know find an analogy that that makes something understandable for the consumer.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. And I'm excited to see the cosmetic industry continue to grow. So thank you for sharing all of your insights with us. We're, we really appreciate it,
0: thanks. I enjoyed talking with you today.
1: As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.